Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns-Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. Welcome back, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Today's episode is really interesting. Smushy and I talk about the difference between life and living and dive into this whole concept of survival, where survival is something that we've inherited from our family of origin or even different times in our lives where we think about when we're in a situation where we feel like everything is all or nothing, like you're stuck and how to get deeper under that to feel like you're not actually stuck or how to sort of dispel some of the beliefs that you have that you've inherited of what survival is and really having the luxury of being able to question it. And it's kind of incredible to me how this concept spans through so many different aspects of your life whether it's the question of whether or not you have kids as a woman and what your legacy looks like and how you pass down what, anything, it's, it's really anything. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We surely did. Hi, Smushy. Hi, Smushy. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I feel like we haven't talked for a while because we've been so dang busy lately. There's so much afoot, isn't there? There's so much that gets pointed out about how much change we are longing for and desperate for, how much has yet to change. Mm-hmm. Will it ever change? feels so daunting. It does. Life is daunting. (laughs) Is that the podcast today? Yes. Living and life, are they really the same thing? What's the difference? From when we're conceived, we're in the process of living. But you know, actually, Sushi, I looked up the definition of life. Mm -hmm. And the definition is the condition that distinguishes animal and plants from an inorganic matter, including the capacity for growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change preceding death. And then I read another definition of life, and it only said existence. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wow, that's a big difference. But I think maybe living and life Perhaps part of the missing equation is where survival comes into that picture. How would you define survival? I think it's about the state of continuing to live or exist in spite of circumstances. Mm. You know, or existing from an earlier circumstance or time. Don't you think when you read the news... Today, there's nothing new in the news. Mm-hmm. That's what always strikes me. I think, how long has this battle been going on? We're just the most recent participants who pick up a battle rather than resolve the problems that it originated from. What do you think? 
I just don't understand how we can't ban guns. It's like, what's the big deal? Like, why are so many people allowed to have guns and use them? It's like anybody can get a gun. And what do you think the answer is? I mean, there's got to be some kind of money or agenda or idea of freedom that people have a distortion around or a fear. Or all the above. Everything you just said are components, right, of what controls gun laws, gun distribution, gun manufacturing. It's actually, I'm so glad you brought this up because that is exactly a good indication of a culture living from a place of survival. Mm, How so? Look in cultures today. There still are cultures that exist where people don't lock their doors. There are places where people don't carry weapons. Mm -hmm. So when people are not perceiving themselves as in survival, then they don't have a need for a weapon or not a gun, you know, because... Uh, Carrying a weapon could be a stick, but a gun can't become something else. Right. Yeah, it's intended for one thing. The difference to me between survival and living is vast. There are times in life when we're placed in survival, and most of the world's population struggle with your basic needs, struggle with surviving without basic needs provided. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're in a state of fear. Yeah, or survival. You explained survival to me one time as all or nothing thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think all or nothing thinking tells you where you are in your brain. You're in the occipital lobe. You are in fight or flight, part of the brain. And More importantly to me, I think that I've always been passionate about observing human responses, my own included, and where they get internalized and where they get triggered. And I think often this controls the pace of evolution. So if we're all coming from the occipital part of the brain, which stores endless stories and imprints of how we've survived as a species from the beginning, then what happens is we are being triggered from cultures of survival, which I personally observe the majority of our thinking is not really coming from thought, but coming from survival and the instinct to survive. And that's not a bad thing. That's our first culture. You know, when you're making your way down the most dangerous path of your life, the birth canal. It's very unsure. Nobody is guiding you. You have to make your way down that birth canal, and it's very dangerous. It's life-threatening. It's the most dangerous path you've ever been on. But we have nothing but histories of survival behind us as a species. That's our first intelligence, though. I don't think there's anything wrong with being very instinctive and having layers of instinct so that you can survive. I think it's brilliant. It ensures that you can be here for a while. But then we haven't trusted what comes after that. Mm, I've never thought about that way. 
Sumishi, this reminds me of that story you said one time. You shared about when you were working in the in the Lovell in Swaziland. The Lovell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were, I think that you were, as a medical intuitive, you were serving a particular community and it was a kind of a dangerous way to walk mm. to go through and you encountered those men that threatened your life. Do you remember that story? Mm. I, I actually, I was working away from my uh, region. That's why. And I was just helping out some traditional healers there. So, uh, yeah, I was making my way back. I was going to head home. And then I heard a bird call that's not from that region. And then I knew it was the men surrounding me. Uh, and I knew then suddenly that I was just had stepped into uh, a trap. You know, there was a lot of thieving rings in that area. Well, and you said your instincts knew that something was wrong because the hairs on the back of your neck stood up. Yeah, I, and you know, I don't really think I'm a very instinctive person, to tell you the truth. But you're very observant. Yes, I'm very observant, and I have a lot of intuition. But uh, instincts, you know, like the will to stay alive or figure out how to survive against the odds, I don't think that's my great gift. Well, what I thought was so interesting about that story is that these were men that were, you know, it's like you alone and a group of men that were surrounding you that were threatening your life. And I think that your instinct was to just show them love. Is that correct? Well, two things simultaneously. And and that's not something you plan. It's just, I'm just sharing what happened. I knew two things. I knew they needed greater love. And I also knew they needed to know that I saw them, even for what they were about to do. Because really in a flash, I knew that they were carrying weapons and I knew they weren't just after whatever monies I had on me. I knew that they would take my life. They'd get out of watching you be scared. For sure. And it's not that I wasn't scared. It's just that I was more acutely attuned to them at the moment, strangely. And, you know, who knows if it played out again, if the same thing would happen to me, but that's what happened on that day. And so I looked at them in the eye and I I knew the one who was the leader by his stance and how everybody was looking at him. Uh, so I knew he was the one in charge. So I looked at him first and I just looked as if it would be the last person I'd ever get to see, the last human, the last of my species. So I just gave him that look like I was going to hand him everything I had and give him that responsibility. And then I looked at each one to say goodbye. But I was already accepting of my death since nobody else was around me to help. So I just kept looking at them around and around and around. And it, then all of a sudden, everything got very still. And uh, next thing I knew is that bird call sounded from that one who was presumably the leader, and they were gone. Now, afterwards, I felt the significance of being in survival. 
You know, I had adrenaline flowing. I didn't like walk off whistling Dixie. I felt it. I felt the, the gravity of the moment. And I also felt grateful that even though they obviously, to a fine-tuned science, had figured out how to find people whom they could rob, I also felt grateful that they still had their humanity inside. You know, that it was reachable. Like That inspired me about them. Sushi, when you were growing up, like, did your family have a sense of culture or something they taught you or an indication about survival or the history of your family? Because your family came from Iran. And I wonder, what was it like for them to move to the States? And how did they make that transition? Were there cultures in your family that helped you to prepare and helped you survive? I'm sure. But I think because I was born in such a different circumstance, it was hard for me to relate to in a lot of ways. Los Angeles was a big hotspot for where a lot of Iranians came to when they escaped Iran because of the revolution that happened in 1979. And nobody really wanted to leave. So they kind of came here and tried to recreate what they had there here without really wanting to acclimate into a new culture or society. And because there was so many of them that came to one place here, they didn't really have to. Whereas that was kind of unrealistic for me because I went to a school where I was probably one of three Iranian kids and the majority of my school was other cultures and I wasn't exposed to. So it was very much living in two different places at the same time. It was like my outside world and then my inside world. And a lot of the survival things didn't really resonate with me. It was a very much like trust no one. Like I, I wasn't supposed to trust friends. I wasn't supposed to trust people um, that didn't look like me. It was very much like a godfather, like blood is thicker than water <laughs> kind of mentality. <laughs> Was that conveyed like just sort of by osmosis or how did you glean that? Yes, it was conveyed by osmosis. And there, I'm sure that there were also things said. I've always been a very empathetic person. And so I would get really involved in my friends' lives. I would know about, you know, my one friend who I know her dad was domestically abusing her mom and... I would get so involved emotionally and, and my parents would get really upset about it. And it almost felt like a survival thing. Like, I, you shouldn't take this on. It's not yours to take on. And, you know, you have to worry about your family only, not anybody else's family. And that never made sense to me. That's fascinating. And then the concept of life and living, I mean, if... Your family came from hardships. Mm -hmm. And now that they had, through immigrating, they had these opportunities to live life without so much hardship. Mm -hmm. Then what did they convey to you? Like, what are you supposed to do with life? How are you supposed to see life? Life is about what? It is about you. 
enjoying it and getting ahead in as many ways as you can. It's very much like out for you, out for yourself. That's so interesting. You know, in my family, uh, everyone, my grandparents came from four different countries. And they came here, even though they were teenagers, they were already functioning alone as adults. And each had a harrowing story behind them. And so my four grandparents are from four cultures, and they met each other in Chicago, and they married as teenagers. And I think they came from, from the stories I heard, just harrowing traumas. And yet I will tell you that the theme in my family, if I think about a theme, it was about love, uh, being loving, extending yourself to those who are even in worse situations, humor, and creativity. And I think what they did is they just, each of them made themselves think outside the box since there was no one to pave the way for them. They didn't have family to tell them what to do. And I would say that that thread affected me growing up in life. You know, that the concept of things out of your control can happen. So always be creative. Think outside the box. In fact, I, you know, it's so funny. I remember once, as you know, I sometimes know things, but I don't learn them the way people learn them. I, I can see the outcome. And so in mathematics, that really worked in my favor. <laughs> and so I got A's from knowing the answer. But at a certain point in math, when you get past algebra and you move into geometry, you always have to prove how you got the answer. And you get graded based on that. And then I hit the wall. So I was sweating bullets at the kitchen table doing homework, and my dad was there with me. And, and I was just berating myself. I was like, wow, I've been a cheater. I just know the answers. I just know the answers. And I, I don't know how to prove the answer. And he was listening to me, and he was like, he goes, Jewel, no, I don't see it that way. I, I see that you are a natural problem solver. Aww. And he was like, problem solvers? They can figure anything out in life. Don't let this stop you. Go ahead, figure out another way to show them your methods. Wow. And it really changed my life because that's the one thing I would say I've taken away from my dad. It's the biggest thing he left me with. And that's what I think about when we're stuck in survival. Uh, when something happens and you have no power over it, you have the opportunity to think differently about it. And so obviously the solution isn't where you think it is or we'd be having it. And so like your friends that you grew up with, you were like genuinely caring about them. You cared about them. That's why you were involved with them. Well, but it's so hard to see other options or solutions. I guess that's what people pay so much money for therapy so that somebody can present to you <laughs> some different alternatives. That you didn't think of, but I think that's the big thing, right? When you're in survival and you're thinking all or nothing, you're really thinking that there's only two ways out of this. I know when I'm in survival, it's like my back's against the wall and I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't have options. I don't have any other options. And 
those are the times. And that's what I've learned through the course of the last few years, really inspired so much by you actually to go deeper within myself and figure out, well, I'm in this circumstance, but I have more options. I know that they're in there. I just need to find them. I need to go deeper to figure out what they are and what they look like. And then when I do, it's so liberating and empowering. And I'm like, okay, this feels good. I don't feel like I have my back against the wall anymore, but it's very, very hard when you don't feel like you have options. Or what if you just don't know you have depth and that the answers lie there. Mm. You know, um, I don't know if you've read much of his work, but I love the biochemist uh, Bruce Lipton. Mm -hmm. He wrote this book, The Biology of Belief, and he shows the connection between beliefs and how they actually impact our biology, even more than our DNA, and that our beliefs change the body's response, and even things we've inherited. And so I, I wonder if we looked, instead of looking at something that's a problem, if we didn't go into automatic survival because we were taught or encouraged to problem solve and to find out what we really believe instead of what is common belief, you know, if I go to parts of my city here uh, where I grew up in Chicago, I remember my first real job. My partner, she was my age. I was 19, 18. And uh, she was carrying a gun. You were talking about that. And I said to her, I, I was so shocked because she took it out of her purse one day to find something. <laughs> and I was like, what is that? <laughs> and she was like, Julie, what do you mean, what is that? That's just my gun. That's just the little one, of course. And I was like, the little one? You have a bigger one? She goes, well, that one's for night. But this one's for the day. And my dad gave me this one, of course. But he gave me this a few years ago. And my eyes were just wide open. I wanted to know why. She was like, why? so I could go to work and come home or go to school and come home. <laughs> and she was like laughing it off like it was the craziest thing she ever heard. And what stunned me is that it never occurred to her that she could carry out her life without carrying a gun. So I think if we don't know that there's another solution, then we just repeat whatever is repeated to us. That's true. And I think that's really tricky. You know, it's like... Physics explores the interactions between matter and energy, the cause of phenomenon. Well, why don't we look at the cause of the phenomenon that happens in the news, for example? Why, why don't we investigate that rather than just investigate when someone felt helpless and someone felt that they were triggered and they were in survival and they did what survival taught them? That's not a question. That's obvious. It's like we keep telling that story. Do you think survival is always rooted in history? So like being creative or creatively problem solving would be a more authentic expression of a person 
than to go back to survival and just do what's always been done? Or could it be a combination? Because there are some survival tricks that really worked good for me. (laughs) Say more about that. I don't know. Maybe you can help me unpack this a little bit. But for example, I have this uncle. His belief system is incredible. Like he thinks he can do anything. If we would go to Disneyland, we couldn't get tickets. He would literally just act like he already had a ticket and walk right through the doors and nobody would stop him. (laughs) That's a whole different problem. (laughs) (laughs) He had this like conviction. And I think it was, I don't know if that's just being a hustler or survival of like, this is what I need to get. Um, And that's a stupid example, but he would kind of do this across the board. And I kind of learned that from him. It's funny because people, when I was like in college and stuff, I would do things like that. Like I would sneak eight of my friends into a Laker game, Uh, like the finals game. Yes. It was like my biggest claim to fame. I had literally got eight of my friends into one of the finals games. Um, Oh my gosh. No wonder you work (laughs) for them. You you owe them big time. You know, I I used it poorly. And then I stopped sort of doing it because I think I started become becoming known for it. And I thought that it discredited <laughs> when I would actually work on things or do things. So I was like, okay, I don't want to be known as that. So I'm just going to, you know, but it, I feel like it was really me testing powers, right? Like testing my powers. But I feel like it's rooted in survival somewhere. So what is that? Yes, totally. I mean, you're saying it. So somewhere in you, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. If we could discover the parts of ourselves that we think we're conscious about, but we're utterly unconscious because we're on autopilot. If we asked ourselves, what made me react to that situation like that? I mean, I walk down the street many times. I've shared this with you. I walk down the street with my husband at night, possibly in the day. (laughs) And if any men are walking in any particular way, which I certainly don't discern as different than our own steps, he thinks that they're interested in me or that they could somehow threaten my stance. And he will step out in front and say, what do you want? (laughs) And I'm like, what just happened? He's like, you didn't see it. And I will agree. Yeah, I didn't see it. (laughs) Because, Because nothing triggered survival in me, but everything triggered survival in him. Whatever that magic formula was, you know, a look, a step, a bigger step, a step out of line, whatever it is, it equated a threat. And so I just think if we asked ourselves, when's the first time I got introduced to this concept? And it's uncomfortable to do that. It's very uncomfortable. It's hard work. Most people would more likely say, I don't know, why are you asking? But if you bother to go back and find out in your consciousness, it's all we care about. We don't care about somebody else's or what happened, but what you perceived about what happened. Because that's the difference between being in survival and living life freely. You know, that's a change for evolution. This is so, 
so fascinating because it's just bringing up in me something that I never thought of as survival for me, which is like cutting corners. And I remember going through a period in my life where I really had to have faith that I could get ahead without cutting corners, which was a survival skill that I was taught. And perhaps uh, it would be a wonderful thing to ask yourself is cut corners because why won't you get opportunities just by being enough? Right. Because I was a woman or because I was an immigrant or because I was whatever. Yeah. Isn't that just, it's so powerful. Well, it's powerful because you have to give yourself that thing. You can't take, you can't wait for the world to give it to you. It's all, it's all part of internal, it all starts inside of you. And what we make of life and the purpose of life and then our beliefs about how that will happen. You know, do you spend your life thinking how to stay out of survival or do you spend your life searching to make an imprint while you're here? for the betterment of others, including yourself. You know, I love astrophysicist um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He said this thing, it just is incredible. Can I share it with you? Please, please, I love him. Ah, I love this. He says, the problem, often not discovered until late in life, is that when you look for things in life like love, meaning, motivation, It implies that they're sitting behind a tree or under a rock. The most successful people in life recognize that in life, they create their own love. They manufacture their own meaning. They generate their own motivation. For me, I am driven by two main philosophies. Know more about the world than I knew yesterday and lessen the suffering of others. He said, you'd be surprised how far that gets you. Doesn't that make it feel so doable? Mm -hmm. Living rather than surviving. Totally. But it's so hard, Smishi. It's so hard when you don't come from a single example of that in your family. It's true. But so many of us don't have a single example of it in our families. So. We must be designed to work together to go beyond that perceived barrier, like creating bridges of trust where you can. Sushi, we come from totally different cultures and backgrounds. Isn't it remarkable how much we love sharing the deepest, the most intimate, the most fragile walk we walk, and then just explore and consult about virtually anything. How did that happen? We weren't prepared for it. It's true. We both just like exploring. (laughs) We love exploring truth. And then we also loved identifying it when we find it. Mm. And you love sharing it with people in your sphere. And I love sharing it with people in my sphere. Right. Hence the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the podcast, just including our listeners knowing we already trust that those who are listening to our podcast process, think about these very same things and bring it to their sphere of life. Mm -hmm. We don't know their names, but we believe in them. Yeah, 
That's incredible. I wonder, Smishy, if you have any examples of anything in life where you started out from a perspective of survival and then asked yourself a question about it and evolved that thing. I can't think of anything right now. You do it so often. I do. I see you think outside the box constantly. Well, but that's just because I don't have reference for something. I'm like, how do you do this? So I have to think outside of the box. Wow, Smishy. Do you realize what you just said? You just said that not having good examples has also been the greatest blessing because you automatically think outside the box because you don't refer to a pattern that's been institutionalized for you. Oh, I love that you love that because that's the one thing that I struggle with all the time. I hate that I don't have references. I want them so badly. But that's where prejudice and feuds come from. Somebody says, we hate those people, so your offspring has to hate those people. And they don't ever have the privilege to ask the question, why? Why do we hate them? Why are we afraid of them? Why would we hurt anybody? And why is that okay? Why is that acceptable? If people grow up imprinted, they rarely have the opportunity to evolve out of it. And here you do it every day without even thinking about it, Smushy. The very thing that if everyone participated in privately, then we would have greater evolution and transformation. You know, I hate to think that we always have to get to really good things through hurt and pain, but recently it feels like a lot of the things that we do get to really do come from that. I know we've been talking about death a lot, but even in death, or it just feels like, you know, you've talked a lot about taking the path of least contrast. You know, it's like we don't always have to learn things the hard way, but it is feeling more and more. And I don't know if it's because of the world we've created. It does feel like a lot of the things that we come to that make us great really come through the through a path of pain or hurt. Well, one thing for sure about pain or loss is that you don't want to repeat it <laughs> unnecessarily. No. So because of it, because of it being such a huge imprint on you, you want to do anything you can to learn about how to prevent it from reoccurring. So I think that um, it isn't the only way to learn. Contrast for sure isn't. But it does ensure a landmark in the path of your life. Because everybody always remembers something horrible that happened to them. And so for, for sure, you don't want to go back. If you don't have to. You never want to go back. So I think it's valuable in that sense. It's a guaranteed marker that you'll refer to and go, oh, wow, am I heading in this direction again? So I have a question. If you do something like that, if you go through something that you never want to go back to, because you did that, is it guaranteed that in your family nobody will do that either? Or can somebody after you make the same mistake? You mean, do we affect the evolution of the other members of our family or people we're in relationship 
Yeah, I feel like there are certain things that my mom, for example, or my dad didn't have the opportunity to transform that I kind of inherited. And now it's my responsibility to transform it. And I would hope that because I did that work, it wouldn't carry on to the next generation. So if I were to suffer some great trauma or not even a trauma, but if I were to go through some big thing and I were to be like, never again, never again, will my, will I have to do this again? Would that have any kind of ripple effect to the people around me or the people that come after me in my bloodline? Well, I suppose the answer is it depends if that was enough for things to reach critical mass in the consciousness of your family because, you know, every person is an individual with their own perceptions. I know quite a lot of people who researched health uh, to an extraordinary measure, really meritorious research, and as a result changed their life, you know, their habits and their diets and all the support of life, and their children rejected it. And that's their right. It's their right to investigate truth for themselves and discover what what is and what isn't according to their perception and also according to who they follow. Because maybe if they're part of a generation where that's not widely accepted, that evolutionary benefit has not influenced them. Isn't that remarkable? It's, it is. Can you think of a time or an example of where something has hit critical mass and has been repeated within a, fa- within a family? For sure. I can give you a great example in my own family. When I was little, I heard stories from my grandfather, my dad's dad, about how he left where they lived on the Baltic Sea uh, and his father was a very violent alcoholic. And so much so, that's how my grandfather ended up a stowaway on a boat and ended up in the United States after a horrific, violent episode. But he said that at that episode, he made a vow to himself that he would not repeat history. And in addition, not only would he not be an alcoholic, but he also would be a loving husband and father, and my grandfather was. And interestingly, my father inherited those traits from his father and the stories, and my father wanted to improve it. And he said that he acknowledged how his father treated his mother and himself and his sisters, but he said that his father didn't communicate. And so he said that he vowed that there would never be a closed door and that he would always try his best to be a communicator. And so that's where he is, which is interesting. But as a result of when you give up alcohol as a lifestyle, usually that next generation craves carbohydrates and sugars. Wow. So my dad said he always was aware of battling that, which he handed me. (laughs) And so I have to be, you know, super conscious of the role sugars play in my life. And in addition to what my father conscientiously lived as a parent, I thought communication would be important 
you know, with my children. But I also noticed that my father did not have many emotions. You know, as you know, we nicknamed him the Zen master because he said he has none. But I think that's a result of his evolution. And so I do my best. You know, who knows what my children will choose to change in their choices. But I think that's evolution in slow motion so you can see it. Have you seen such things for yourself? Or is that the example you were thinking of or no? No, Smishi, that was a great example that answered my question. I started thinking about something completely different. Which is what? I was just thinking that if I don't have kids, then where would all my work go? Mm. What does evolution look like? (gasps) Like, then what would my legacy be? And who's the recipient? Right. Like, does it just end? And how many times has that happened? It just ends. That's a choice you make. That's an evolutionary choice. So anytime a person decides to have offspring or not to have offspring, it's for an evolutionary choice because what they are saying through the expression of their life is I choose to use my sacred energy in this path and I choose to stop something that I perceive to have been stalled or thwarted or suppressed by my family of origins pattern. So if a woman, for example, I I have a girlfriend I grew up with. She was one of 11 children. And I remember when we were about 10, 11, I don't know what started the conversation, but we were talking about the future. And I said, I said, I see you're so good with your brothers and sisters. How many children do you want to have? And she looked at me totally alarmed and she said, None. None. (laughs) She said, I feel like I've already been a mother by this age my whole life, and I never want to have children, as I'm not going to perpetrate, you know, what happened to my mom, that she didn't have the choice. And I remember just taking it in so soberly, like, oh, of course. Oh, how insensitive of me to have not even considered that. And... uh, What a brave evolutionary choice for her. She's not making it for humanity, just making it for her. So, you know, if if you decided not to have offspring, Smishi, that means you're going to deposit all your wisdom and your knowledge to the people in your sphere of life. And also, do you think it's an accident that you have like zillions of nieces and nephews through your friends and your community. I notice that when anyone is born in your group of friends and community, you are so there for them. Sushi, I've never met anybody more active than you with friends' kids. I have, but that's neither here nor there. I guess I'm just wondering, and maybe this is going back to like the way that I was raised and the whole like blood is thicker than water, that nobody will really care about you unless they're related to you after you're gone. And that is a belief. So if if I don't have kids, it just kind of ends with me. And almost like my life won't matter. Weird. And can you see 
where that would originate from if you go back in history. That would guarantee that that strand, that lineage, that clan, that family name would continue. Right. Is that part of survival? All survival. Wow. And that's how I feel. Like I'm letting down, I would be letting down my family name. Like all these trillions of years or however long that we've been going and then it's just going to stop with me. But you know what's fascinating about that? I bet you anything your brother does not feel that way. He doesn't at all. But if you switch to a different culture, it is on the square on the shoulders of the males because their name is what they want to continue. Whereas with you, it's about having the offspring. Right. Wow. Smushy, we got messy in the deep end today. That's a whole other conversation. (laughs) We can continue another time. Yep. Well, Smushy. Agreed. That was great. (laughs) As always, I've learned many a new thing. As have I. I love our conversations. Me too. It's really good. And we can't wait to talk to you again next week. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time. 